So where are we at tonight? In the Bible. In the Bible. New Testament. New Testament, okay. Anything get closer than that? Two weeks off and you all have just gone all mush. Titus. We are going to be in the book of Titus. So, feel free to use your table of contents if you want to get. It's towards the back. You get to 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. Yes, sir. Right after 2nd Timothy. So, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd of John, Jude, Revelation. So, you can work back to the left or if you want to work from the right. But we're going to be in the letter of Titus. Now, when we talked about, we've been walking through on Wednesday nights, you know, we've been walking through a different book every single Wednesday, just trying to do a survey. Started in Genesis, we're going to wake our way through Revelation, but when we got to Titus, we went through the prison epistles that we are talking about, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Then when you get into 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, you get into the pastoral epistles. So what you find there is you find Paul who is writing, and he's writing it to young preachers in the faith. So we spent the time in 1 Timothy talking about how, um, what the job description is of a pastor and how do we understand biblically what the job description of a pastor That was 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy, we talked about how to persevere, how the church can help the pastor persevere, how the pastor can biblically understand what it takes to persevere. Then tonight, out of the book of the letter of Titus, we're going to talk about how to protect and preserve the church. So it's not just written to pastors, but this is also a letter that has application to the church. So there's instructions in the letter of Titus how it is that we protect and preserve the church. Now, what do we know about Titus? Anybody know anything about Titus? Paul mentored Paul mentored him, okay. Do we know anything else about Titus? Okay. I'm not trying to set you up for failure. You're not going to find a lot written in the New Testament about about Titus. You're going to find his name mentioned multiple times. In fact, you'll find in 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions his name eight times. In Galatians, he mentions his name twice. In 2 Timothy, he mentions his name once. So you'll see his name mentioned a lot, but we don't see a lot of the information like we did with Timothy, you know, where it talks about Paul when he went to to Lystra, Lystra, however you want to pronounce it, and he goes there and he gets stoned in the second missionary journey. He comes around and then he finds Timothy and talks about Timothy's mother, talks about Timothy's grandmother, talks about Paul then taking him and circumcising him. There's other places in Scripture that talks about how Timothy was used in the ministry. When you get to Titus, we don't have a lot of that. You might find commentaries, you might find other biblical writings that may talk about, they uh, will we'll talk about, well this is who Timothy was, but from the Bible itself we don't have a lot of biographical information about Timothy. We do know like you said, Harold, he was maybe we could surmise that he was in the shadow of Timothy, but he was also one of the ones that was always um, helping Paul in his missionary journey. So as Paul is moving around and he's going from place to place to place, um, we have a lot of evidence to say that Titus was one of the helpers moving around with Paul. So when you come to the book of or the letter of Titus, we know that author, and that would be Paul. We know the audience, and that would be Titus. But then, where is Titus located? So remember, Timothy was located in the city of Ephesus, and he was pastoring the church in Ephesus. So Titus is also pastoring a church in a geographical area. Where would that be? Crete. 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 Where'd you get that from? That's right. That's right. Sometimes, sometimes it's not. They're not meant to be trick questions. Sometimes it's just right there in the text. So it's not that you. You may think, well, I don't know where to see that at. Well, if you look there in verse five of chapter one, Paul says, "This is why I left you in Crete." So he identifies. Paul is writing. He's writing to Timothy, and Timothy is pastoring the church in Crete. Now, does anybody know where Crete is at? Don't tell me in the world, Miss Carol. I know it's in the world. I, I, I know it's in the world. It's not in America either. It's not in America. It's not. No, ma'am. It, it is. It is not exactly in America. 
It is an island. That's right. Right. Okay. No, sir. Any ideas? You can look. Go ahead. Look in the map. So, Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. I'm sorry. Did I, 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 I stole your thunder, Mr. Ron. Okay, so so you got you got it located there, Mr. Ron. All right, so if you're looking at a map, and I'm going to try to do this backwards, that way I don't mess you up. Okay, so if you're looking at a map, you're going to have Israel is going to be over here. All right? And then up here, you're going to have, biblically speaking, you're going to have Corinth, Ephesus, modern day speaking, you're going to have modern day Turkey, Greece, and then over here, you're going to have Italy. Okay? So in the Mediterranean Sea, you've got Israel, and then you're going to have Jordan and Syria and then it's going to go on up here to Turkey and then it's going to come on over here to Greece and then over here to Italy. Okay, But in the Mediterranean Sea, you have different different outcroppings. So like in the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea, you'll have the Aegean Sea and that is where Paul, on the second missionary journey, the Macedonian call, when he goes from Troas to Macedonia, he crosses the Aegean Sea. But I'm getting probably being confusing. So... Mediterranean Sea, body of water. Israel's right here. First island, Mr. Ron, working from Israel to your left is what? Cyprus. Cyprus, that's right. Cyprus. So Cyprus is mentioned in some of your maps. It'll show in Paul's missionary journeys that he actually went through the island of Cyprus. Alright? That's all the way to the That would be all the way to the east, closer to Israel, would be the island of Cyprus. Then, if you move further west, or like on your page, Mr. Ron, should be further to the left, you should come to the island of Crete. It's in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, you may say, well, why, why, why does it matter where it's at? Well, the island of Crete is mentioned by Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles. In fact, in Acts chapter 27, if you remember, Paul gets arrested in Rome. Remember? No, 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 no. Paul gets arrested in Jerusalem, right? He goes to Caesarea. He's in Caesarea. He appeals to Caesar. So then they take him from Caesarea to Rome, right? Remember the story? So on that on that voyage, they're making a kind of a hopscotch and they end up shipwrecking on the island of Malta, which is all the way up north towards Italy. But in that voyage, he talks about making this direction. So I'm in Acts 27. I'll just read it to you. Um, or you can turn there if you don't believe me. But Acts 27, he talks about in verse 4, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the, the lee, which is a geographical term, under the lee of Cyprus. But then, as they went under Cyprus, and they're moving to the west, it says, then they went around, <coughs> excuse me, Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of Salmon. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens there where, or near, which was the city of Lycia. So these are cities on the island of Crete. So the understanding that we get, we don't have any kind of idea that Paul um, had any time there to start a church, tell people about Jesus. We really don't have a lot of explanation. What's that? Oh. Hey, you it's King James. Oh, King James. Okay. The original. <laughs> and it shows that he got two weeks. He drifted. Yes. Two weeks before he got over here. Like you said. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, that's, and that's the original. That's the authorized. <laughs> so in that missionary voyage, or not missionary voyage, but in that trip in Acts 27, it doesn't say anything about Paul got off the boat. doesn't say anything about Paul went and told people about Jesus. doesn't say anything about Paul starting a church there in Crete. And yet when you're in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul makes the illusion that, Hey, Titus, I left you in Crete for a purpose. So the question that I would have, and maybe the question that you might have, is so what are we missing? How does Paul get to Crete in a position to tell people about Jesus and to help start a church? And where does Paul get to Crete with Titus in tow to leave Titus there? That's a question that I have when I come through the biblical story of how did this take place? 
And this is where the fourth missionary journey story comes in. Has anybody ever heard of the fourth missionary journey? So the idea, and you're not going to find this in Scripture. Some people may say this would be apocryphal. I would just say it comes from other Jewish historical writings. Is that when Paul went to Rome the first time, he got before the emperor, um, probably the Caesar, um, and was allowed to be released. Then Paul went, many people think he went on a fourth missionary journey. And then after the fourth missionary journey, he was arrested a second time, went back to Rome, and he was beheaded at that point. So there's many biblical scholars, commentaries, people that think that they got a lot more education than me that will say that where Crete came into play was this was most likely the fruit of Paul's fourth missionary journey. And on his fourth missionary journey, as he's coming down, um, he might have said, hey, I remember this place. I remember this city. I remember this town. We stopped here the first time I was on the way to Rome to be tried for some false charges. I don't know what the case was, but where we come into at Titus chapter 1 is you have Titus, a disciple, a helper of Paul in his missionary journeys. They're on the island of Crete. Apparently, obviously, there is a church that has been started and has begun there in the island of Crete. Paul has left. Many people think that Paul has now been imprisoned for the second time. He's back in Rome and he's writing back to Timothy. Or, I'm going to see, keep saying Timothy. He's writing back to Titus to encourage Titus. You're there in Crete. I want to encourage you not only to protect, but to help preserve the church. People are going to date this, the writing of this letter, around 62 to 64 A.D. So you have the author, you have the audience, you have kind of the overarching purpose of why he is writing this. Maybe, hopefully, this gives you a little background when you come to Crete about where, that's an island, it's in the Mediterranean Sea, to the west of Cyprus. It was part of the, the navigational journey, the first imprisonment journey. Maybe this kind of gives you a little background of where we're coming into the writing. So this wasn't considered part of mainland Israel wasn't considered part of the first three missionary journeys that Paul went on. This is kind of an outskirt, if you will, kind of going off the beaten path. So what we're going to see here, and what I want you to look at me, or look with me at, is Paul's going to talk about a problem, and then Paul's going to talk about a solution. So he's going to say, here's the problem, Titus, that you're going to be facing in the church, and then here is how you solve that problem scripturally within the church. So the first problem that I want you to see is that of leadership. If you go back to verse 5 of chapter 1 in Titus, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may have put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I I directed you. And then verses 6 down through verse 9, he gives these qualifications of the elders. Why would that be a problem? Well, because leadership is always important in the life of a church. Leadership is poor, the health of the church will be poor. Leadership is strong. The health of the church will be strong. I remember um, in my seminary days, they were saying that the pulpit drives the church. And it wasn't meant to puff up the pastor or the ministerial leader, but it was meant to remind them of the responsibility. Um, Some people will say, especially in preaching class, that if there is a mist in the pulpit, there will be a fog in the pew. So they're trying to make the point that if preacher, if you're not clear, preacher, if you are not uh, understanding of what you're trying to say, preacher, if you're wishy-washy, preacher, if you are uh, not grounded in what you believe and why you believe it, and you're swayed back and forth by different doctrines and different ideas, you're going to be uh, you're going to be influencing a church in that direction, and so leadership is important. So what Paul is saying to Titus is, Titus, there is not just a need for leadership, but there is a need for godly leadership. I do not know of a single church today that cannot use more godly leadership. I don't know of a pastor worth his salt that would not welcome and rejoice more godly leadership serving in the church. If you ever hear me or anyone else that serves in leadership that I get a chance to serve alongside with or 
at another church, you ever, ever hear anybody make it sound like they don't need help, don't want help, or don't have any room for help. If it's me, go ahead and go out there and cut your switch and just take it to me. Because there is, to me, there is never a point that a church has too much godly leadership. And it's the same way here in Crete. We, we, have, we don't know exactly who was there. We don't exactly know the names of the faces or how many positions there were. But Paul said there is always a need and there is always a need for godly leadership. Now, it, we're not talking about just leadership because you can always find someone that can tell you what they think you ought to do. Or tell you how you could have done it better. Or tell you what you should have done instead. Or tell you what they didn't like about what you did. Those are always there and they have their place. What Paul is trying to tell Titus is, is there's always a deficiency for godly leadership in the church. So he says, Timothy or Titus, you're gonna have you're gonna have a need for godly leadership. So that's a problem. That's why he gave the qualifications, verse six through nine. You think back to first Timothy chapter three, and he gives the qualifications for elders and pastors and even deacons there in first Timothy chapter three. Why? Because there is a need for us to understand what godly leadership looks like and what it doesn't look like. And there are many people today trying to pass themselves off as spiritual leaders that are unqualified to fill that position. So he says, there's going to be a problem. Not only do you have a problem with a lack or a, 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 a vacuum of godly leadership many times, but then there was another issue, another problem that was facing Titus. Verse 10, chapter 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And skip down to verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Not only in the church do we have the danger of always needing more godly leadership, but in the church we always have the danger of false teachers creeping in. False teaching creeping in. And that's a danger even within this church. Why? Because of the access to religious teaching today. You can get on your TV and you can watch somebody preaching anytime you want to. But you don't know whether it's good preaching or bad preaching or biblical preaching or unbiblical preaching. And sometimes you may get 30 minutes into a sermon before you realize this person doesn't know what they're talking about. And if you don't know your Bible, you may not be able to discern whether it's right or wrong or up or down. You may not be able to know the difference. And not only do you have TV, but then you've also got radio, and now you've got the internet, and now you've got social media, and now you'll find people in 30-second sound bites that'll be bringing stuff to you, and you do not many times know the background of that person, the history of that person, who that, who that person is coming from, where that person is coming from, what that person has talked about. The first year we took kids to Falls Creek in 2014, we got on there, me and the youth pastor, we sit down, and we could pick any of the eight weeks we wanted. So we sat down and we looked at the eight speakers coming in. We looked at their background. We looked at where they were serving at. We looked at where they had served at. And then we found preaching from them on the internet. And I wanted to listen to their preaching. Because I knew we were going to take 14 kids to Falls Creek. And they were going to send them to their preaching all week long. And I want to know who this person is that's going to be influencing these young people during that week. Now I realized, you know, like when, when this church was going to Falls Creek, I realized, well, I think it was week three. They just, you knew week three. We always had week three. And you couldn't, you didn't get to pick who the speaker was because Falls Creek picked that for you. But it's one of those things. I know who's going to be speaking at youth camp this coming summer where we attend youth camp. I know who's speaking, and I can tell you where he's serving at today. I can tell you where he served at before, and I've already listened to some of his preaching. Not because I control who's speaking, but because I have a responsibility. Because false teachers are sneaky. False teachers are slimy. And false teachers are teachers, but they're teaching false things. So we've got to be careful. So what Paul is telling Titus is he's saying, Titus, beware. 
You need godly leadership. You just don't need leadership. You need godly leadership. And this is how you discern what godly leadership is. The second danger is, is you're going to have false teachers all around you trying to influence, infect, and distract the people. Sometimes they are subtle. Sometimes they are very overt. But you always need to be on guard because there's always false teaching. None of that has changed all the way from that time in 62, 63, 64 AD, all the way up to 2023. We still have the same danger. You find something, you hear something, and somebody says, well, what about this? And what about that? Or you find people and you start listening to them. And you're like, man, this, this person's really good. I've, I've had some people, even in this church, they'll send me clips of sermons. And they're like, oh, I just love the way that they put that. Yeah. And then I will, I will listen to the entire sermon. And then I'll go back to the individual and go, you know, that 30 second sound clip, that was, that was pretty cool. Did you listen to the other 30 minutes? No. Well, just a word of caution. You might listen to the rest of 30 minutes because that might give you an opinion about that 30 second clip. Because there's a lot of it that sounds good, but that isn't good. So that was the problem that Titus was facing. That was the problem that Paul was concerned about. And that is the problem that we can still have present in the church today. So what does Paul do? Paul says, Titus, here is the problem. But then he gives them the solution. And that's chapter 2 and chapter 3. Then Paul then turns and says, this is how you protect the church, and this is how you preserve the church, and this is how you address those problems. So, we're going to do it in three ways. And they're all three D's to try to make them memorable for you. So you have doctrine, you have discipleship, and you have devotion. Those are the ways that Paul spells out the solution on how to protect and preserve the church. Doctrine, discipleship, and devotion. Now, let me show you, let me show you where we get those. Alright? So, in verse two, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul writes, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What does that say in your translation, Mr. Ron? But speak out the things which become sound doctrine. Okay. So, he uses the word doctrine. Can somebody tell me? What is doctrine? Believe. What you believe? All right. Scripture. What? Biblical truth. Okay. All right. Scripture, biblical truth. Other ideas? God's word. Okay. There's not a wrong answer. I mean, it's not like you're getting scored on this. I'm just. Yeah, what? SpaghettiOs. SpaghettiOs? <laughs> it could be if you're Chef Boy ID. <laughs> so if you look up a dictionary definition of doctrine, you might find something like this. Something that is taught would be one definition. Or a second definition would be a particular principle taught or believed by some religious organization. Which I realize that's real broad. But the idea, as all of you said, except for SpaghettiO, is it is it is God's Word. And it's the way that we understand God's Word. So, doctrine is not a, a fancy word. And it's not a word just, say, for the preacher or the Sunday school teachers. Doctrine, we all... Every one of us in this room has a set of doctrines. We all have a set of beliefs. Now, they may not all be the same beliefs, but every single one of us has a set of beliefs. And why do we have those sets of beliefs? It's because of the way we have been taught. As long as I have known the Whitna family, they have driven, they have driven, not driven, they have driven Fords. It doesn't matter. Fords, Fords, Fords. I was at the Dollar General Sunday before evening service, taking Hurley to get him something to drink. And when I pulled up in the park, parking lot, there were two of Mr. Ron's sons in the parking lot. Guess what they were both driving? F-150s. It's like a Witna, like if you have the last name, it is synonymous with four-door F-150. <laughs> right? Do you even own, do you have an F-150 four-door? Two-door. Two door. 250, 250. You have the 250, but you don't have an F 150 four door. No. Ooh. 
You're slacking. Okay, slack. So as long as I have known, the witness have had four trucks. Now you may say, well, why, Mr. Ron, would you have four trucks? He might say something like, well, that's what else are you going to drive? That's the only thing there is. He'll say something sweet like that. But a lot of that probably goes back to that's what his dad did, or maybe that's what his dad's dad did, okay? So if you come to my house, the two vehicles that are parked in the driveway at my house both are GM products. Both of them have a Chevrolet bow tie on the front. Why? Is that because that's the only tile they make? No. Why? Because that's what my dad drove. That's all I can ever remember my dad driving, and that's all I can ever remember my grandpa driving, and that's just what I grew up driving, and that's just what we do as a McConnell. You drive Chevrolet, right? If you're going to be a good McConnell, you're driving a Chevrolet. If you're going to be a good Whitna, you're going to drive a Ford, right? So what is that? That is a type of our doctrine. We have been taught to do this. This is what we believe to be best for us. That it would be considered a doctrine. When it comes to the things of the Spirit of God, we all have a set of doctrines. So what does Paul tell Titus? Paul tells Titus, if you want to help protect and preserve the church, one of the solutions to the problem that he was facing was to teach doctrine. But it wasn't just any kind of doctrine. What does he say? Most of your translations are going to say the same thing. It's sound doctrine. It's just another word for saying true doctrine. Faithful doctrine. Right doctrine. Now how do, and how do we know what's true, faithful, right? How do we know if it's sound or not? We compare it to the Word of God. So if we say, well, we believe that Jesus had red hair, where are you going to get that from? Well, you have no place in Scripture that said Jesus had red hair. But there'll be some people, and there's even people today, well, Jesus had long hair. Well, why do you know that? Well, in the last picture I saw, Jesus had long hair. <laughs> But you hear that, right? Jesus had all of skin. Jesus had this. Jesus had that. Well, there are things that we can believe spiritually that are just the same thing that came down through generations or traditions or because we always believe that's what that's the way it happened and that's the way that it was supposed to be happened. One of the things that I've enjoyed in watching the Chosen TV show series is because some of the things that they portray in that TV show series I can't tell you are unbiblical. It's just that's not the way I always thought about it. Makes sense? I mean, that's not the way that I that, that I, I, I pictured it. And I don't know if I got this imagery from my Sunday school teacher. I don't know if I got the imagery from the flannel board graphs, you know, the flannel graph boards. And I don't know, I don't know where I got that imagery from, veggie tales. I, I, I don't know. But I had it in my head that it went this way. And then when I'm seeing it portrayed on the chosen, I'm thinking, no, that's not the way it happened. And I think to myself, well, the Bible doesn't say exactly. What exactly happened? Like, I think it was at the end of season one when Jesus comes out to do the Sermon on the Mount. And they've got the stage set up and they've got the curtain set up. And he's, he, he's, the crowd is drawing and he walks out on the stage. And I'm like... There's something wrong with your picture. Well, on the TV. Part of it is, as Matthew chapter 5, 1 says, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him, and He opened His mouth and He taught them, saying. And then it goes on in Matthew chapter 5. But at the same time, I mean, who all was there, who wasn't there? It just challenges some of those preconceived notions. So what does Paul say? Paul says, make sure that you're teaching them sound doctrine. Don't teach them popular doctrine. Don't teach them doctrine that is tradition necessarily. Tradition is there for a reason. We don't want to ignore that. But make sure and teach them sound doctrine. Things that are supported. Things that are defined. Things that are clearly laid out in Scripture. So in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, teach sound doctrine. At the last part of verse 3, he says, they are to teach what is good. Then you get down to verse 7. And the last part of verse 7. And in your teaching show integrity and dignity. Then in verse 10. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So Paul says the first step in protecting and preserving the church is to make sure and teach doctrine. Teach people the things of God. Don't just get up there and tickle their ears. Don't get up there and motivate them. Don't get up there and make them feel better. Teach them the Word of God. I get aggravated. Oh, so aggravated. 
When a preacher gets up and he spends the first 15 minutes telling you a story. And he's never given you an address. It's just a personal pet peeve of mine. I'm not saying there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. My goal is, is that when we get up on a Sunday morning, what are we doing? We may relate a story, relate an illustration to God's Word. What is the primary importance of what we're doing here on Sunday morning? It's the Word of God. So let's make sure here's where we're going to be at in the Word of God. I don't want anybody to sit for more than 30 seconds, 60 seconds without saying, hey, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. Let's get turned there. And then I always encourage as much as possible to have a Bible in front of you. Why? Because the Bible doesn't get notifications. A Bible does not get notifications. It's amazing to me, Miss Carol, and I may step on some toes, and I'm if I do, you can apologize to me later. It's amazing to me, it's amazing to me, Miss Carol, how many people will use this and then they'll get a notification. Somebody will text them. Somebody will mess them on Facebook or they'll do something. And even though, even though they're using this as their Bible, next thing you know, they find themselves being distracted. And that's a danger. It's a danger for me. Now, some people have that kind of ability to not be tempted in that direction. I, was, I have not been blessed with that ability. So I get distracted. And so if I was to use my phone on a consistent basis while I'm sitting there, and let's say Mr. Austin here, he's preaching, and he gets to a part that it's not that you know, engaging, you know? You know how sometimes you check out and you're kind of daydream? Don't look at me like that. I know you all do it. Don't, don't look at me like, oh, no, nobody does it. <laughs> Liars. So, yeah, see? So, you, you know, but when you check out, sometimes, you know, if, if I'm sitting on this thing and all of a sudden my mind starts to wonder, I just start wondering right here. So that's why I always encourage people to have the Word of God. I saw that thing, a necessary evil. Because I didn't want to have to learn how to use it. And I'm still not very successful with it. Well, I, so when it comes to God's Word, I, I just want that to be the emphasis. And so that's why I encourage people to have a Bible. You have a phone, why can't you, know, why, why can't you bring your Bible? Now, I, people have different preferences. That's just my preference and my little peculiarity, if you will. But he's saying, teach doctrine. That's chapter 2. And if you, some of your headings may say, depending on the translation that you have, my translational heading here in the English Standard says, teach sound doctrine. Paul says, that is the way that you guard and protect and preserve the church, is you teach doctrine. You teach people what God's Word says. Yes, you need to teach it in a relevant way. Yes, you need to teach it in a way that people can understand. Yes, you need to teach it in a way that applies to where people are at and is something that people can take home and implement in their daily lives. Yes, it needs needs to be to the person. But we're not teaching three steps to make more money. And we're not teaching five ways to better love your spouse. And we're not teaching three ways to get a raise at work. And we're not teaching seven ideas of how to lose weight. And we're not teaching four steps to having a better retirement. We are teaching God's Word. He says teach God's Word. You want to protect the church? You teach God's Word. You want to know a way that you can find the churches that are faithfully teaching God's Word with godly leadership versus those that are false teachers? Listen to what they're talking about. A big way to discern the false teachers from the faithful teachers is to listen to what they're talking about. Listen to them. Listen to what they're saying. And if they spend all their time telling you how cool you are or how cool they are and not talking about how cool God is, be on guard. Beware. So he talks about he talks about the false teachers and he says you protect that with doctrine. But then there's another aspect and that is discipleship. Discipleship. Where does this come into play? Where does the idea of discipleship look like? Now, somebody give me an idea of what discipleship is. Building a godly relationship. Okay. Alright. Getting in the Word together. Okay. Teaching someone. Sure. Maybe a quick definition. There's a lot of good definitions out there. Maybe a quick definition would be 
somebody teaching someone else how to follow and be faithful to God. So what does discipleship look like? Discipleship looks like you saying, hey, I want to be learning and growing in my faith. So who is it that can teach me and help me, hold me accountable to grow in my faith? And then who can I teach how to learn and to grow in their faith? And it is just a, we try to make it complicated in the church. And we try to have all these big programs. And we try to make it sound all fancy and all special. And we try to make this something that, that sounds mystical about, oh, we're, we're all about discipleship. Discipleship is just us teaching someone else how to follow and be faithful to God. So how does this look? How does Paul have an vision, this picture of discipleship work? Well, in chapter 2, in verse 2, what does he say? He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. And then he goes, uh, do-do-do-do. I lost my place. I'll have to come back to it. So, the idea, he says, the older men... I'm going to get to it, are to teach the younger men. Verse 3, the older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. The Word of God may not be reviled. And then verse 6, he picks it back up in this idea of the older men teaching the younger men. So this picture of discipleship that he is laying out is, you have the older women teaching the younger women and you have the older men teaching the younger men. And that's the picture that's laid out is as these young men and young women are growing up, there is always an older person above them teaching them what it looks like to be faithful and follow after the Lord. And as they are getting older and as they are learning and as they are growing, then they are teaching the people below them. Sometimes we try to make this complicated and say this has to be a group thing and it has to be uh, something that can only happen at the church or it can only happen in a small group setting or it can only happen the first and second Fridays or, or it can only happen at 4 o'clock or it can only do this and we can do that. Now all those things are good. It's just the picture of discipleship is older people teaching younger people. Well, what is required if older people are going to teach younger people? You've got to have older people that are willing to teach younger people. And you got to have younger people that are willing to learn from older people. That is a major deficiency today in the church. We have older people that either are chronologically mature, but they're spiritually immature. Or we have older people that are more concerned about themselves and not teaching the younger people. Or you have older people that are so tired of trying to teach the younger people that are only disobedient, disrespectful, rude, arrogant, and don't want to listen. Or you have older people that just say, it's not my job. And then you've got the young people over here that think they know everything. This would be my category. I, I own it. I, I would be in that category. We, we know everything. We know better than the older generation does. Oh, we don't need them. We have, we have Google now, and we have social media now, and now I have YouTube, and I don't need anybody else. And they're too prideful, too arrogant, and too immature to know they need to be taught. And that's not a new problem. You may say, well, my gracious, in 2023, could it ever have been this bad? Yeah, yeah, this isn't a new problem. That's why Paul's addressing it in the letter to Titus. Saying, how do you want to protect and preserve a church? Make sure and encourage. Make sure and instill. Make sure and put this as part of the practice of the church. That you have older people teaching younger people. He says older women teaching younger women. Older men teaching younger men. Men, why? Because there are differences in our genders. We're not fluid. We don't identify how we want to identify. Watched a video this last week of a woman that claimed to be trigender. And when she tried to explain being trigender, you, she said you have a male, you have a non-binary, and you have a female. I identify as all of them. With a straight face and with a belief in her voice and her eyes like she actually believed she could be male, non-gender, and female all at the same time. She does not know biology. And she doesn't know the Bible. 
So there's a difference. So that's why Paul says, hey, we need to have the older women teaching the younger men and the older men teaching the younger men. There's a picture of discipleship that is there. Now, we have a deficiency today because we have individuals that say, well, who are you, who are you being discipled by? Well, nobody. Well, who are you discipling? Well, nobody. Because there's a lot of confusion. What does that look like? How does that play out? What, what is, what, what, how, how does this thing play itself together? I'm going to tell you just some practical ways that this works out in my life. Is there's men in this church that I'll go to and I'll ask for ideas, opinions, advice. Just this, just this evening, before a lot, many of you showed up, I'm down there and Steve is coaching me on parenting. He's a little bit farther ahead of me in the race. So I'm asking him questions. He's saying, well, you know what? Janice and I tried this. Janice and I did this. Janice and I did this. It wasn't always about chapter and verse. It was about life. What is Steve doing? Steve is discipling me as a father. So then what do I do? Then I have an opportunity when I go home and I got those sweet little black-hearted sinners at my house and I have a chance to disciple them and to teach them. And so you have this played out. Not because I've got it all figured out. I'm just saying it doesn't have to be so complicated. We don't have to say, well, I need a book study and I've got to have a 12-step program and I've got to have all this figured out. It's the idea of who is speaking into your life and whose life are you speaking into. So he says there's an element of discipleship. Why? Because that is how the stories are handed down. Those are how, that's how the doctrine is handed down. So you have doctrine, discipleship, and then this last one, because I know I'm almost out of time, devotion. So he says you want to protect and preserve the church, teach doctrine, <coughs> practice discipleship, and be devoted. Now, where do I get that from? Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed and hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify Himself for a people for His own possession, who, who are zealous for good works." When I think about that word zealous, I think about a devotion. Chapter 3, verse 1, he goes on. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Why would I do that, Paul? Verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What's he saying? He is saying it's a devotion to God. It's not a devotion to this world, it's a devotion to God. Why should you be devoted to God? Because He saved you. He sent His Son to die for you. All of these things in our lives should pale in comparison to our devotion to God. Our devotion to God should precede and be a higher priority than anything else in this world. He is saying, remember about who you are in Christ. Remember about what you are in Christ. And remember that your devotion to God will be evident and apparent to all the people around you. So the people at your workplace, the people that you interact with on social media, the people that drive next to you going down the road, Anybody that sees you walking to beds, walking out of beds, walking to the grocery store, walking out of the grocery store. They see you sitting in a restaurant. What do they see? They see your devotions. Your devotions to yourself, your devotions to something else, or your devotion to God. And he says that the way you protect and preserve is to make sure and to teach and encourage, exhort is another word that he used. Exhort them. That's verse 15 of chapter 2. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. He's saying, encourage them. Be devoted to God. There's a couple of things that happened last night. Maybe some of you were sleeping when some of these things were happening. First, you had the political event happening on the East Coast, Washington, D.C., President of the United States gave his State of the Union address to the joint session of Congress last night. Now, 
I don't agree with the current President of the United States. But he is the President of the United States. And whether I agree with him personally or not, that office comes with a certain level of respect. I can disagree, but we can still have civility. And we can still show respect for the office. So, last night he is giving his speech, and there were things that I didn't agree with. But there were several times that there were people that disagreed with him. Congress people. One, I think, was a congresswoman. I think another one was a congressman. They yelled out the word liar. Was he a liar? He might have been. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just looking at it and going, how sad are we as a democratic republic when on that stage, when a world is watching, we have that little respect for the office of the president of the United States. They have. We should expect no less. They have. But what I'm looking at going, you're not devoted to being civil. You're not devoted to being respectful. You're devoted to running your mouth so you can get more clicks. You can go back to your your support base and say, hey, look, you know, I was I, I was a, you know, horses patoot on national television. Whatever you want to do. It's the idea that we're, their, their devotion was not to making this look respectful and saying we are going to support this system of government. They're devoted themselves. West Coast. All the way out there in Gillentine country. <laughs> used to. Used to. Gillentine country. All the way out there in California. There's a basketball game going on. The Oklahoma City Thunder were playing the Lakers. Los Angeles Lakers. Right? So you have the Oklahoma City Thunder. They're playing the Los Angeles Lakers. What happened last night? LeBron James. LeBron James. He scored his what? 38,493 points. Close. 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 He set the all-time NBA scoring record by scoring 38,387 points. Now let me try to put this in perspective. I mean, and this is just how I worked it out of my head. Okay, so you're a pretty salty basketball player, and let's say you are scoring 20 points a game. The regular NBA season has 82 regular games. So if you're scoring 20 points per game on an average, that is 19 or 1,919.5 games that you played in that you scored 20 or more points in. And if you figure there's 82 regular season games, that is 23 and a half years that you played regular season basketball every game of the regular season, scoring on an average of 20 points. Now, we know that we, he scored more playoffs. I mean, I, I understand all that. What I was hearing was for a man, he's in his 20th season. He was the first round draft pick in 2003 by the Cleveland Cavaliers. Cavaliers. So he's been in the league for 20 years. For 20 years, he has been producing. He has been fruit bearing. He has been faithful to the game of basketball. So that last night, there in his home arena, with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar sitting there watching, who has had the previous record for over 30 years, and they are sitting there as LeBron shoots the fadeaway jump shot, breaks the record. 38,387 points. That's devotion. Now, if you watched his press conference after, or his on-court, um, he didn't say words that I would think would be appropriate to say in church or even at the house. But to me, you have to recognize that for a person to reach that milestone, even in a sport that you may care or not care about, there's a great amount of devotion. And then it kind of made me think as I was looking at this stuff this morning, what kind of devotion do people see in us? What kind of legacy do they see in us? What kind of 
perseverance do they see in us? What kind of attitude do they see in us? Do they see that kind of devotion in us? LeBron LeBron James was asked if he started off his NBA career seeking to break the all-time scoring record. And he said, no, that wasn't even one of my goals. My goal was to be the best basketball player I could be. I focused on the day-to-day. This was the result of me focusing on the day-to-day. Worked for a man for a season of life. Uh, Don, just west of town. Oh, Collins. No. Had the Don, power line. Don Chester. Chester. Worked for Don Chester for a season of life. And I remember him coming and telling us, and he said, men, if you watch out for the pennies, the dollars will take care of themselves. Sometimes we just need to wake up in the morning and recognize that we have an opportunity to be devoted to God today. We don't need to be worried about what next month, next year, next 10 years are going to do. Just wake up and be devoted to God today. And worry about today and let tomorrow be tomorrow. Let a year from now be a year from now. What Paul, I think, is trying to teach us in his letter to Titus is teach doctrine, practice discipleship, and practice devotion to God. We need all three of those desperately in the church today. Because we have people that will be devoted for a season. We have people that will be devoted why it's easy. We have people that will be devoted depending on the schedules of the family. We have people that will be devoted as long as it's comfortable or as long as it's convenient. But we need people to be devoted to God. Why? Because there is a whole sanctuary full of young people wanting to know what it looks like to be faithful to God. And they're sitting there at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, trying to figure out what it looks like to be devoted to God. And what would it be like for them to be able to look and to say, you know what, I can see uh, Alvin Lee who's over here and he is showing me example of what it looks like to be devoted to God. Or what if they're looking and saying, you know what, I can look over here and I can see a Julie Biggs and she's giving me an example of what it looks like to be devoted to God. That's the opportunity. That's the responsibility. That's where we're coming into the story to be that example. Now you can say, well, it doesn't matter. They're not going to listen. They're not going to pay attention. Well, it's required of us. It is required of us and we have no idea how much people are paying attention and listening to us. There's more than what you think. Absolutely. I mean, they see a lot more than we think they see. And they're listening a lot more than we think they're listening to. Our devotion matters. So, Paul's writing Titus when it comes to the church. Doctrine, discipleship, devotion. Protect the church, preserve the church, love the church, be devoted to the church. So my hope and my prayer is we then move from Titus and we're going to move on to Philemon, I believe, is the next one for uh, next Wednesday night. As we move on, that we just think, what, is there, what are the lessons that we can take away from this time tonight on how we can best protect and preserve the church? Questions?